Good morning. It's good to be here with you. Begin to look out into the faces of brothers and sisters in Christ and the common union that we have as God's people, as recipients and responders to God's love. Sunday school, I was thinking as we were discussing brotherly love, and there's a little, a little phrase I'm sure you've heard, and I don't know if I'll get it exactly right, but to dwell in love with saints above, that will be glory. To dwell below with saints we know, that's a different story. Where the rubber meets the road is where the love is tested, where it's proven or disproven. But like, like was mentioned in our class, none of us is perfect. We're in a journey. We're growing. And the verse that came to my mind is a thought about love there in 1 John, I believe it's chapter 2. It says that God's love is perfected in us as we walk in His way, as we obey His commandments. And that's a, that's a challenge because we, we are the hands and feet of Christ now. We are the ones that show His love. Yes, He showed His love in coming and living. And now it's our responsibility to take that love further. So a lot of different thoughts that entered my mind as I prepared to share this message. And I'd like us to think a little bit about our place in the world, the world. Currently in the world, I believe there's over 195 countries along with some different territories. Which country, which leader has the right agenda? Who's got it all figured out? Whose cause should we be championing? How do you figure that out? Do we need to figure it out? Was Jesus a threat to Caesar? Well, Pilate didn't find any fault in him. And Pilate was supposed to be safeguarding Caesar's dominion. Jesus wasn't there to, to tear the foundations of government apart. Was Jesus a threat to the Jewish leaders? They got Him crucified because He looked on their hearts. But as we think about what's happening in, in the world, I don't hear, you don't hear much about, and I don't hear much about a lot of things because... I try to stay away from a lot of the media and the news. But you know, we know that there are those whose country is being attacked. 
still ongoing, almost a year into conflict. Those in Ukraine are, are suffering. Many of those, them are fighting for their country, for their, their country. You know, we, we feel for them. Our minds go a lot of ways. We feel that they're being wronged for being attacked. God should stop the aggressor. They're evil. Some time ago, I heard someone speaking of why they are fighting for their country. And they, specific, they, they reference some specific rights of personal freedom of expression that their country is, is allowing or promoting. And that freedom of expression is what God calls the blasphemy of self-worship and idolatry, homosexuality. That's what they were championing. And I had to think of, of this, you know, this, this is a... We can draw conclusions to a lot of things. We can make judgments. Well, this is right, this is wrong. These people are right, these people are wrong. This should be stopped. And in our... Our finite wisdom, we don't see the big picture. I just want us to back up and, and remember, God judged His people for such things and God judged the Amorites or the Canaanites for such things. Does God still care about these things? And, and I'm not going to build anything off of that necessarily. I want us to just place these, these thoughts God used the Assyrians to overthrow Israel. God used the Babylonians to humble Judah. Were they righteous people? No. God was worthy and God was righteous even if the tool was not. Were there righteous men in Israel? Or Judah? Think about Daniel and his three friends. Did they have to suffer? If you remember in Genesis 18, the Lord came to Abraham and He let him know what was going to happen in the future, in the near future, at Sodom and Gomorrah. And when Abraham realized what was happening... In, in Genesis 18, verses 23 through 26, it says, And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for fifty righteous therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked. And that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. I'm challenged in Abraham's faith that God was righteous. God saw the beginning from the end, and if God chose to do something, God was righteous in it. And yet he said, how can the Lord destroy the righteous with the wicked? And it goes on that Abraham bargained with God to preserve that city for 10 righteous souls. And yet, even when the city was destroyed, Lot was delivered. 
Just look at the mercy of God there. Turn with me to Luke 21. Luke 21, I'd like to read beginning at verse 10. Jesus speaking, Then said He unto them, Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And great earthquakes shall be in diverse places, and famines, and pestilences, and fearful sights, and great signs shall, be, shall there be from heaven. But before all these, they shall lay hands on you, and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts, not to meditate before what ye shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends, and some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But there shall not an hair of your head perish. And your patience possess ye your souls. Sounds like rough times. Persecution. Trouble. What was the response to be? Rising up and declaring my defense, the government's wrong. A little later in Luke 23, we have the testimony of Jesus before Herod, verses 8 through 10. It says, And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Just looking at Jesus' response to those that treated him unfairly. He didn't answer. He didn't come up with all his reasons why he shouldn't be here. Where was his strength? Who was his ally? Mine went to Psalm 46. A familiar psalm. But one again that as we look at, at this idea of the nations, of, of the conflict that we saw there in Luke 21, the conflicts we see around us in our world. In Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Selah. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. 
God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God shall help her in that right early. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Where is your anchor cast? And whose cause are you championing? Which of the 195 nations do you want to be signing up for? Or do you want to be part of God's kingdom? Which king will you follow? With that backdrop, I'd like to shift gears a little bit and ask some questions. I don't know a number of you here, but I'm going to look a little bit at identity. And I want to ask this question first. What does it mean to be a Mennonite? Whether you are a Mennonite or not, you're here at a Mennonite church this morning, so you're identifying with Mennonite. What does it mean? Is it determined by the church you're a member of? Is it canning peaches and green beans? Is it not participating in elections? Is it not serving in the military? Is it having a good work ethic? Is it wearing a cape dress and not wearing shorts? Is it not driving a red sports car? I had a man ask me, he found out I was a Mennonite, and he said, so what, what kind of Mennonite are you? He said, I know a man that he's a Mennonite, but he can drive a red sports car and go to rock concerts, and then there's Mennonites that drive horse and buggy. So what kind of Mennonite are you? And you see, there's, there's a lot tied up in that identity. Does it really matter what being a Mennonite is? How many of you here would say you're a Mennonite? Acknowledge that. Does it matter what you are? Okay, then it matters. It matters. We all have an identity. And if we identify with that, it matters how we express that identity. You can get places in a lot of different ways, different modes of transportation. Let's think you have a bicycle, you have a motorcycle, horse and buggy, a little black Honda Civic, a blue minivan, a gray maxi van, a red Camaro, a Learjet, there are other ways. Each mode of transportation comes with its own ramifications, restrictions, and connotations. When you see someone going down the road on a 
crotch rocket, you think something about them, right? They like speed, they like thrills, got more money than buying a scooter. If you want to go to a cabin in the mountains, you don't get in a Learjet. And you can't go to, to Hawaii on a bicycle. And I would say that being a men, the Mennonite, Mennonite itself, perhaps we could say, is a way of applying the Scriptures. It's not the end in itself, but it's the means to an end. It's a vehicle. Being a Mennonite, or maybe we could say conservative Mennonite now, with what all has transpired in the last 50 years, Define something about you. You value certain things. We value certain things. We do certain things and we don't do other things. It affects how we look at Scripture. Do the teachings of Christ carry more weight with us than God's instruction to David? That is a... That is a basic way you apply Scripture, looks at how that, if you, depending on how you interpret that or answer that question, determines where you come out in application of Scripture. Are we here to influence a civil government? Are we here to live a holy life and call others to the same? These are things that we subconsciously, perhaps sometimes, we have, a, we have values here. So, you know, some have become obsessed with what it means to be a Mennonite rather than what Mennonite, where Mennonite is taking me. And our conference was formed because of some of these issues. I was recently reading a, a book entitled Mennonites in American Society, 1930 to 1970. And looking at, the subtitle was, modernity, modernism, and the persistence of religious community. And it looked at the broad spectrum of Mennonites. Um, only briefly mentioned Amish and Old Order. And our type of Mennonite, of the, the conservative strain that we, we are here, did not even register in the discussion. Of course it was, it ended in 1970 when our church was not yet formed, our specific church. But one thing that I found very sobering was the fact that during the wars that plastered the, the 20th century, there was quite a divergence from the values of the church and the behaviors of the people. The stated values. And the values of, I think, a lot of the leadership and the people, but yet how many, how disconnected it was. I enjoy reading history, maybe more so than I used to. It's disconcerting and sometimes disturbing to realize what we thought of people and how it maybe is inaccurate. But I think it does as well to go back and look at what happened 100 years ago. What was the church struggling with? How did they handle the situations? The situation of conscientious objectors during World War I was, was undesirable to say the least. It was a time of, of persecution. 
for the church. And we forget that. Some, many of us have not heard those stories of those men, what went through uh, as conscientious objectors. But following that, the leaders and, the, and organization of the Mennonite church did a lot to establish an alternative service option for World War II when it came and following the, the Korean War and so on. But many of the draftees chose military service, some combatant and some non-combatant, over the alternative service. And I was shocked to see this. And I get, this, is, this is Mennonite from General Conference to well, the Lancaster uh, Virginia Conference, all these conferences. But, but it was the, the face of the Mennonite church then. The statistics are from all Mennonites and Amish in 1940 to 1947, World War II, 40% chose military service, active military service of, the, of the, those drafted. 40%. What was being a Mennonite? Okay, Think about this thing of, of identity and the values you hold. 14% went into non-combatant service and 46% went into the CPS In our, our strain, or I say our historical strain, it was 30% went into regular military, 10% non-combatant, and 60% alternative. What does this have to do with a message? Think of which king. Think of whose cause are we championing? Whose values are we taking on? As different writers looked at at what had happened in, in considering this. Robert Kreider was a man that was, was looking at, at the, doing this, compiling some of the research and, and analyzing this, and he said he thought that there were four environmental factors that shaped the response to the conscription, to the draft, and that was the church, the home, the community, and the people, the other associations that people associated with. He thought inadvertently or consciously some congregations had nurtured young men's disposition to enter the military. One was by general reduction on teachings of nonconformity. Only subsequently did they find that non-resistance did not stand well on its own without other kinds of nonconformity. You know, non-resistance or loving our enemy That's different from the world's way of thinking. But if we take on all the other ways the world acts and dresses and their passions and what they're feeding on, and then we say, oh, wait a minute, but we don't go to the military, it didn't fit. There was a lot of acculturation happening in the Mennonite church, taking on the culture around them. That was one, one of the things that he looked at. A third problem was that ministers took training in a variety of schools with different theological orientations. And some ministers were offering a dogmatic, militaristic theological system, even within the Mennonite church. And the choices that these young men made revealed the degree to which, quote, the external barriers of psychological, sociological, 
and economic community isolation have already largely disappeared. The only resources left were the inner spiritual ones. The war experienced raised questions of whether Mennonites were going to resist successfully the tide of secularism of which militarism was a part. What is saying that the, the main structure of, of a spiritual, spiritually disciplined life, of a desire to walk in holiness, to be separate in heart, mind, and life from the world, was rapidly waning, and all that was left was this spiritual separation. Yes, I worship God, but I act like the world in so many ways. Would that be enough to really hold one, support one, enable one to stand and live out the teachings of Christ? Later in the 1950s, a larger percentage of the conscriptees chose the alternative service option, but the, the authors of this analysis point out that it was largely in part that now the VS positions of the 1W offered pay. It wasn't just a voluntary service only. So more people could just find a job somewhere that fit into the, the alternative service. It was not an ideal situation, and many young people moved quite a distance from their home communities. And in a lot of cases, there was very little accountability and a lack of a solid Christian commitment on the part of these young people that were going out into these alternative service options. One report of a minister near a 1W facility was that 75% of the 1Ws failed to have a basic understanding of what their position means. They did not understand the value that their behavior was supposed to be showing. They didn't understand what it meant to be a conscientious objector. As many as 50 to 75% never attended church. And these are the young people that came out of the Mennonite church. What did it mean to be a Mennonite? There was a lot of discussion about what this alternative service was for. To many, it was a, a form of peace witness. We need to get out here and push a peace witness to the world so they can see that we're different. But then on the other hand, people said, well, we shouldn't even acknowledge the government has a right to, to even say anything, and, and we shouldn't even work with the government to, to set up these alternative service systems. There was a lot of, of question and struggle. There were those who saw what Jesus did in a political light, and thought that the church had a responsibility to witness to the state. And that led down a path of social justice that came at the expense of the purity of the gospel and was marked by compromise. It was interesting to read the account of those that went to Vietnam with MCC. And in their working, trying to be the hands and feet of Christ. But they were American. And they tried to be neutral in how they interacted with the people and actually tried to keep dialogue open with the, the rebels and, and to make sure that they weren't pushing their Americanism. But they found it was impossible. As soon as people found out they were American, it, it totally shifted what they could hear from them. It brought a huge set of challenges. 
in trying to minister to the spiritual needs of the people. Engaging with the systems of this world. Trying to use the systems of this world. I think we will see will do little to positively further the kingdom of heaven. The real kingdom of heaven. The real purpose of Christ. There's a lot that went into that history in, in seeing people's thoughts. How they worked through questions. What their goal was. But I found that identity was a big thing. Identity. We are Mennonite. And it was just disheartening to me to see where that led. There's actually a book previous to this looking at identity formation more so in the 50 years prior to this. In the 1880s and on. And what disservice the church did to the young people. And not preparing them to understand the gospel. We're all influenced by our teachers and by our environments. And those people in that time frame, I'm not here to judge them. I'm sure that there were points of validity in many of the concerns that they were addressing in that place in that time. But I know that. The calling of the church over the calling of any king of this earth is paramount. We don't, I don't know of a place in Scripture where we're commanded to influence the state. Where we are given directives to influence the state to take on the, the or to accept the lordship of Christ. We're told to Pray for, we're told to respect and honor. Follow their directives when not in contradiction to the commands of God. But we aren't told to make the state Christian. Since reading that book, I'm reading another book called The Story of Christianity. Going back. Acts to the Reformation. And sometimes I wonder how God allowed what He did to happen. Was this God's plan that the church went like it did? But I'm reminded, the church also has an enemy, right? And that enemy, Satan would love to take all of God's plan and twist it and turn it in to a spiral that obliterates God's purposes. So don't lose faith that God is working in people's hearts. And that was the thing that and I'm, I'm coming. These books of history are written about what we know from history. But it didn't talk about the peasants, the common laborers, what their thoughts and hearts were. And I believe there's many, many that knew what it was to love God with all their heart and to love their neighbors themselves. Even though in the ecclesiastical leadership of, of the, the church in the three and four hundreds, five hundreds, oh, it is, it is appalling. The, the lack of love, the lack of, of Christian charity 
the lack of, of respect for each other that was happening in the name of, of the church. But as I consider today, maybe I, I'm going to say we as a people, are too disengaged. I'm thinking to myself, maybe I'm too disengaged from society. Maybe my attitude is a little too fatalistic. What's going to happen will happen. Maybe. But maybe it's faithfulistic. This verse in 1 Peter 4, it says, Wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit their soul, the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. We know that God, God is working and God will work in the affairs of nations. As I think back to Luke 21 here, God doesn't, Jesus in that passage did not tell his disciples, his followers, to persuade the nations not to be in conflict. Nowhere is that mentioned. It's assumed it's going to happen. We're told it's going to happen. It's because they're kingdoms of this world. And we are told that a life lived in the name of Christ will bring conflict with the world and its systems. And it will provide an opportunity to bear witness. You'll be brought before men, before kings, before rulers and authorities. And it will turn to you for a testimony. You will have an opportunity to say, this is who I am. I'm a follower of Christ. And He taught love for enemies. He taught a love for Him supremely above all others. There's an opportunity to bear witness. <clears throat> Excuse me. And while the adversaries of Christ may not be able to gainsay, to, to refute, or to resist that witness... They can kill us. They can put us to death. And yet Jesus said that not a hair of your head will perish. Death is not the same as perishing. Who of us would like to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So what does it mean to be a Mennonite? What do we value and what, do we, what values are we passing on? A question for, for each of us to consider. Am I imposing Mennonite on the Scriptures or am I using the Scriptures to define what a Mennonite should be? <clears throat> There's much about our vehicle of belief and practice that I really appreciate. But a vehicle must be maintained or it will disintegrate, it will fall off the road, it will, it will let us down. The concluding paragraph of this book, I'd like to read yet, and then think about a few other things. It says, above all, the story of Mennonites in America is one of moving from the margins of society to more participation in society's institutions, its cultures, and its values. Yet Mennonites have also maintained their own discernible community. Among them, the old order groups have worked the hardest at preserving the spatial folk communities in which most Mennonites and Amish throughout history have lived. Progressive Mennonites have worked more at preserving community via new denominational structures, ideological formulas, and ecumenical alliances. 
Both into the 70s, both strategies worked, the author says. At least they helped Mennonites and Amish maintain an inner sense of, and self-identity of belonging to their own communities. And the Mennonites and Amish communities did not disappear into the larger American culture. But I have a question. Does Eastern Mennonite University mean that Mennonites are still alive? You see, there was a lot pushed to set up these institutions, these, this organization of this is, this is who we are, we're going to do this, and we'll be separate from or, or delineated from other groups, from other churches, from, other, from our culture. Several weeks ago, or months ago, I guess it was, for the Harry Argo was at school for a talk about technology, etc. I don't know how many of you were able to be there. But one of the main things that I remember from that was something that it fit in with some other things I heard. And, you know, you hear a little there a little. Sometimes you hear something that doesn't quite make sense. And then you hear it explained again a little different way. And then it, it, it gels. And his, his, he drew a little diagram, a little triangle. And it was identity, values, and behavior. And those three all are connected. Because who I am says some, defines what I will believe and value. If I'm a Christian, I believe this. And if I believe that, then I will do. If one changes, then the other, something has to give. Because if I say that I am a Mennonite, I believe in the permanence of marriage, and I am divorced and remarried. Does that work? No. So what changes? Either I have to repent of my sin, I have to say that Mennonites don't believe in divorce and remarriage, or I'm not a Mennonite. It's this, this working together. And what I see happened in the Mennonite church was... The values changed and the behaviors changed and we had to go back and say, what are Mennonites? But we wanted to keep that. And so we had to change the values and we had to change the behaviors as the church acculturated. And it became an identity crisis. I don't think Mennonite holds that much, but it does stand, it has stood for something in the past that I think we should look at in part but we should look at us today and say, okay, Lord, here we are. What from the Scripture should we value? What do you value? How should I then live as your people? Who are we? There's verses that we go to to talk about tradition. Mark 7 is a passage where Jesus can start harshly condemns the, the, the leaders of the day there for their traditions that they held above the commandments of God. And in Colossians 2...
Verse 8, it says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men. So, there are traditions that cause people to go down. That take away from the Gospel. But tradition, I think a better understanding of tradition rather than a way it's always been done is the teaching of values. Is really what is supposed to be in tradition. And as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, there's actually two different passages there where he says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught. The teaching of values. These are the important things. Hold fast to these teachings. And again, in the next chapter, he says, well, I don't have that reference right evidently, but he says, watch those that, that don't follow the traditions that we have taught, whether by word or epistle. Now, here it is. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which ye have received of us. The teachings, the things that are important, the values. That same word is used and translated differently in a passage we all know quite well. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions as I delivered them to you. What are our values? Whose values are they? As we think back, I've introduced this with the kingdoms of this world. And if I champion the cause of some earthly king or power or entity or institution, I will need to embrace their values and their behavior because I will identify with them. How can I fulfill Christ's call to love my enemies if my allegiance is to an, is to an entity that requires me to annihilate them? It doesn't work. Eat something has to change. We have lived in a time of extended peace. As I read this book and pondered the struggles, the concerns, the cares of these men, especially that were we're grappling with how to lead the church. And I consider myself today. My brothers and sisters, you all, where would we find ourselves? Where would we be if we found ourselves in that situation again? A lot of those men that worked hard to secure alternative service options to those wars. Their, their uh, successors are not at the same place in belief or practice that we are. 
those institutions, those things that were set up aren't there anymore. Are we ready for what may come down the road to meet us? Do we know who we are? Yes, as Mennonites, but as God's people, as carriers of the gospel. I don't want to borrow trouble, but I do want us to consider our needs. Because the more we get complacent, wrapped up in politics, or feel entitled to anything, like, we should be able to have a nice house by the road and have the government stay out of our business. We start getting into this entitlement mentality of God owes us a good living here, right? We've lived in a period of peace and prosperity. But I really believe that as we lose, if we lose our perspective of strangers and pilgrims, the realities of tough times will be a lot harder. And my challenge is that we will be grounded and settled in our allegiance to Christ. And that His Word would be the last word. That His agenda would be our agenda. And that His passion would be our passion. I was astounded at how much controversy pain, death, etc. surrounded the theological discussions of the 4th and 5th centuries. Did you hear that? The death, the pain, because I believe that Christ had one will and somebody else believed Christ had a human will and a divine will in the same body and somebody else believed this, then we kill each other. And we miss the gospel. Conflict's hard. Your opinion, my opinion. But what was Jesus' passion? In Luke, I'd like to leave you with this verse. Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. And may that be our passion May the love for God and the love to our brothers and sisters and the love for the lost become our identity. God bless you. Shall we have a song?